Remember all the fears generated by Y2K? Maybe some of you are still eating the spam you stockpiled away or have a rusting electrical generator in your garage. Sometimes it's good to go back and remember why we were afraid and what we can learn from that experience. Hi, I'm Mary Wurtson and welcome to Truth Encounter. I remember when my husband Dave gave this message to our church. It was right before Y2K, and some of our close friends were selling their homes and stockpiling groceries. What we all learned from Revelation 2:19 and following put all this in perspective. It's good for all of us to look back and see how God's Word can steady us whether the catastrophes are real or imagined. Let's join Dave and learn how we can keep our nerve no matter what the future might bring. Y2K is a strange phenomenon that several years ago, as computers began to be developed, a brilliant engineer in computers decided to be much simpler. Instead of having four numbers for the date, it'd be much simpler in doing punch cards to only have two. So instead of putting 1977, he put 77. And nobody began to think, well, when we're, suddenly there's going to be 2,000, and suddenly our computers are not going to read 1999. They're going to read 00. And they're not going to know the difference because of the dumb machine, whether it's 1900 or 2000. Then they began to realize that a lot of embedded ships, that's going to cause havoc, possibly, and planes could fall out of the sky. And your microwave might not work, and your VCR might not work, but much more honestly, maybe the power will go off. In fact, if you check out some of the books, Countdown to Chaos, Will America Survive the Y2K Crisis? Here's another one, The Day the World Shut Down, Time Magazine of January 18th, The End of the World. And they have Y2K insanity, apocalypse now, will computers melt down, will society, a guide to millennial madness. And that's Time Magazine's approach. They have a picture of Judas with the end of the world on his back, and he's beckoning to the worried, fearful crowd. Now, I want to share with you that I've lived in Texas long enough that if the Doppler radar says that a tornado is coming, and they spotted it west of Fort Worth, you ought to get out of the way if you can If you want to buy an electric generator, I've taken out a lot of stock in home electric generators, and I'd like you to buy some of those. Not really. Something that I do want to warn you about is that from the time that I've been a little boy, raised in the Adirondack Mountains, if you think Texans are survivalists, you have never met an Adirondack mountaineer. The Adirondack Mountaineers go up and they live in 30 below zero weather in the deep recesses of Mount Marcy and they never come out and see anybody. They just take a 30-odd six. They take sleeping bags that you can sleep in a sleeping bag with it 40 below zero and they need nothing. And their hair grows down to their waist and their beard grows down to their chest and you just see them a little bit in the summer. Some of the believers that I meet are thinking about selling their house get in their pickup, get a good rifle, and move to the deep recesses of Idaho. One thing I want you to understand is that I know for sure that that's not a biblical approach. For one thing, if people come and they need the food that we have stored in our home because you prepared, then as a believer, what should you do? If your enemy needs food, what do you do? You give them their food. That's what the Lord called us to. You don't need your rifle. 
you invite them in and you give them everything you got. Because the Lord has called us to love our neighbors, we love ourselves. I just want to really encourage you to be careful not to become so full of dread and so full of fear that you begin to become someone that wants to isolate themselves. I know that in the New Testament, we already have people that were in a worse situation than Y2K will probably ever generate. You say, what could be worse than, than not having any food? Well, having members of your family killed, that would be worse. You know, what could be worse than having all the computers shut down and maybe being without power for a couple of weeks? Totally losing your job. Because of your commitment to Christ, you can't ever get a job as it looks like from the present situation. I want you to know that as we've been going through the seven churches of Asia, they were already in the midst of a Y2K crisis. As John wrote the letter that I'm talking to you about, the letter of Revelation, as we look at these seven letters to the seven churches, I want you to realize as a believer that your brothers and sisters, as the calendar moves to 100 AD, these believers were already in crisis. And Jesus gives us the marvelous opportunity to see him walking through this church and to see the kind of a message that he has for his church. As I travel around the country, I see believers that are becoming very afraid. I see believers that are making decisions based upon that fear and dread. Now, there's going to be all different approaches to it. It's very wise to get out of debt. It would be wise all the time to get out of debt. Amen? Proverbs teaches us that. If we in the evangelical community begin to be fearful, and as we, as an evangelical community, we begin to act out of a terrible dread of what might happen, then we've abandoned the Savior that says to us over and over again, do not fear. And what we have in the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians is written to a people that Paul said were living on the edge. They were living on the edge of a totally new age. Paul wrote to them and said, Jesus is coming back again. He could come back at any minute. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and, and Second Thessalonians chapter 2 are some of the high points of the New Testament on the crisis that's ultimately going to come to the world. And some of the Thessalonians reacted to that message of crisis. They sold their homes. They left their jobs, as some believers are doing today. You know what the Apostle Paul wrote to them? The Apostle Paul wrote to them and says, I want you, at the end of Thessalonians, he says this, I want you as believers, in light of the crisis that could come at any moment, in light of the fact that Jesus could come and take you to be with himself, you know what I want you to do? I want you to work with your hands. I want you to keep going to your jobs. I want you to keep paying your bills. I want you to be a people in the midst of a, of a, of a crisis to come. I want you to be a people that occupy till I come. What we're studying in Revelation 2 and 3, those seven churches of Asia that we've been studying about, we're living in the age of crisis, the mission, the first century Antichrist. He had the spirit of Antichrist upon him. He was setting up a powerful persecution against believers. How did John write to the church and tell them to react? And that's what you get an opportunity to see. Revelation chapter 2 said, how should you react? He said, number one, you should ask yourself, is my love for Jesus stronger today than it was when I first got saved? Am I a person that just has truth in my life, or am I a believer that has 
intimacy and love in my life. One of the things that concerned me in the midst of all the discussion about Y2K is number one, number one, I face real crises every single week. Not potential crises, but real crises. Not things that might happen, but things that have happened. Little Joshua, with brain tumors and potential debilitating realities in his life, a parent that have a baby that might never walk again, that's a real crisis. That's already happened. What do we do about that? What do we do about that? How are we going to minister to that? How are we going to take care of that? Talk about losing our material goods. What about Virginia Thomas? Eight years, can't even get out of bed by herself. Those are real crises. You know what concerns me in the midst of all the discussion and all the preparation? I thought the New Testament said that Jesus could come back maybe today. That's what I thought it said. I see all this focus. But what about the fact that from day one, after Jesus said he was going to come back for us, that there were a group of believers that, that hungered for him to come back. Do you know what I'm really concerned about? Not you and me being Y2K compliant. I want you to make wise decisions. Because it's possible that the Lord could come back today. It's possible he could come back tomorrow. But whatever happens, my Jesus is coming for me. I'm not so concerned that you be Y2K compliant. You know what I'm concerned about? It's Dave Wordson, J2C compliant. Jesus' second coming compliant. Because that's the message that I see again and again in the New Testament. That's what John is concerned about as he talks with the church of Thyatira. He's telling the church, in fact, if you look at the end of every one of these letters, the end of every letter of these seven letters, which remember are spelling out to us the number seven is a number of completion, and it shares with us the different kinds of churches and the different kinds of problems we're going to face. And at the end of every one of these letters, John says, your Savior is coming back. John says at any moment he could return. And his point of every one of these letters is, are you ready? Are you ready? That's why he said to the Ephesian church, are you in love with him? It's why he said to the church of Smyrna that had members of their church that were dying. They were, they were facing martyrdom. And he says, you've lost all your goods. You've experienced your Y2K crisis. But Jesus comes to them and says, it's okay. You're going to band together. Just like the early church in, the, in Jerusalem did. You're going to band together. You can get through this. But what he says is, I want you to hold on to what you have. I want you to hold on to your faith in me. I want you to hold on to the power of the gospel. I want you to be pointing unbelievers to this great reality that Jesus is coming back. The focus isn't on Antichrist in the book of Revelation. It's on Jesus. The focus isn't just on the terrible crisis and the end of the world. The Red Book of Revelation doesn't talk about the end of reality. When all the world is gone, Jesus, the one that began the book, is still there. And if you love him and you believe in him, you're going to be there with him. So that's what we communicate. The church of Pergamum, that church that was right there where Satan's throne dwelt. They were living in a city filled with paganism. Filled with horrible, horrible devastation of sin and immorality and violence. And and the worship of the city was to worship the emperor. 
And if you didn't worship the emperor, you couldn't work, you couldn't buy food in the groceries, and this tremendous pressure was upon the church. The Lord Jesus comes to that church and says, hang on, believe in me. I want to encourage you what you're doing. You've built my church where Satan's throne is. I want us to have a great desire. Let's build Jesus right at the foot of Satan's throne. And then we come to the church of Thyatira. It was this church that was filled with all kinds of commercial guilds and all kinds of wool workers and dyers and Lydia was from Thyatira. And in order to be a member of the business community, you needed to be a member of one of these guilds and you needed to go to these immoral, idolatrous meals that they had. And what we're going to find out in the church of Thyatira, this was the big challenge that this church faced. If you didn't go to these meals, if you didn't go into these business suppers, if you didn't enter into the idolatrous worship, if you didn't go ahead and participate in the lewd, licentious, immoral festivities when the meal was done, then you weren't in. Your boss could fire you. And this was a real temptation, because in the church of Thyatira, as we turn to Revelation chapter 2, in the church of Thyatira, there was a, a prophetess, a woman that was incredibly gifted, she was a woman who had good speaking abilities and she had really good, uh, a good name among the church family. She had tremendous oratorical skills. And she was telling the church, I got a solution to this. Because you have come to know Jesus, you don't need to worry about what happens to your physical body. Jesus has come to live inside of you. You have been, been made spiritually clean. You have been made united with him. So it doesn't make any difference. If you go to one of these festivals and they worship idols there, you know and I know that the idols are just hunks of metal and even the the demons that are behind it have no power over Christ. In fact, one of the ways that you could express the victory of Christ is to go ahead and worship the idol and go ahead and bow before them because you could prove that, man, they really can't touch you. In fact, you ought to get to know a lot about this satanic stuff because the more you get to know about Satan, the more you can prove Christ's power over him. And if they ask you to have sex with someone that doesn't belong to you, if they ask you to do what everybody in Thyatira does, you know, you have your mistress and you have your wife, but you also have all these partners at these business festivities, Go ahead and don't believe this one woman, one man kind of stuff that Jesus said because your body doesn't make any difference anyway. You have a new nature in Christ. That's the real you. So if you engage in immorality, it never really touches you anyway. And this woman argued that way. By the way, by late in the second century, that kind of belief was a major belief in the, in the second century church. It was called Gnosticism. The word Gnosis means it's all in your, it's, it's in your head. It's the secret knowledge you have. You don't need to worry about what you do with your body. And it swept the church. By the way, that's sweeping the church today. In America today, there's very little difference between the moral standards of an evangelical church like ours and just totally secular people. Very little difference. And so Jesus is coming into an American church who has believed this idea that we can just go ahead and become just like our culture. It will make no difference if we do immoral things. And Jesus comes to us and he says, Hey, I want to have a real heart-to-heart talk with you. And as Jesus had one of his heart-to-heart talks, we find Jesus stressing the positive first. As we think about being J2C compliant, Jesus begins and says, These are the things in Thyatira that are really important. Look what he said to the church of Thyatira. It's there in the, the letter beginning in verse 18, and we'll pick it up in verse 19. 
Jesus begins with a positive evaluation. Look what this church is doing. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your deeds. The Thyatiran church was a church of action. They were the church that got things done. If I bring into the modern community, this is a church that has an active Awana program. It has an active children's church program. It has an active women's ministry. It has an active you know, vacation Bible school ministry. It has the uh, really major youth ministry in its area. This is a church that gets things done for God. The Lord also commends his church. You're a church of love. You're a church here of self-sacrificial love. You're a church that's willing to give to one another. In order to become J2C compliant, Jesus second coming compliant, I want you to keep growing in your love for one another. The question I ask myself, am I more concerned about being more loving towards you, more caring about you, more a, a brother to you, more of a daddy to you, more of a family member to you now than I was when I first started with you? Am I more concerned about that than whether my computer works? And to be honest with you, that's a big question for me. And I want you to pray, man. I want to, I want to, I want to be J2C compliant. If, if Jesus comes back, I want us all to be able to stand before him. And when he calls Midlothian Bible Church forward, I want him to be able to say, I want all of heaven and earth to know, here was a Christ-like loving church that had my power working among them. And they understood that it wasn't just church, it was about family. Was really about intimacy and the family of God. And they resisted the American idea that it was just culture. And man, they generated 2,000 years after I lived on planet Earth. 2,000 years. Here was a church that was loving, filled with Calvary love. That's what I pray. The third thing this church of Thyatira had that was very positive. Look what it says. They not only had this deeds, this action. They not only had this love, but they had faith. They believed in the promises of Jesus. That's what it means to have faith. It means they built their life on the fact that, of what Jesus said. And I talked to you the last time we were together about what it meant to have faith. It means to read this book. On Monday morning, we're studying through the book of Hebrews with some men. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. God's hall of fame of faith. That's why I thought of it. Because Jesus commended the Thyatiran church for their faith. And we're studying a chapter that begins right in Genesis with the birth of Abel. And it goes to Noah, it goes to Abraham, goes right through to, to women like Rahab the harlot and the different men and women of faith all the way through the Old Testament. And it commends them for building their lives on God's promises. And I want to pray that we'll be wide, the J2C compliant, because we're growing in our commitment to Jesus. The third thing it says in our faith in him, the third thing it says this is your service. I love this balance. You know, you, you go towards these more self-sacrificial love and faith. It's kind of an internal attitude and that generates action within us. We started out with an active word of deeds. Now we come back to another active word, deeds. And the word that's used here is this is the word for deacons. It's the word for self-sacrificial love. You know what it is? This morning at the men's prayer meeting, we were having prayer. You know, my coffee cup was about half full, and I really am a Texan. Because one thing I've learned in a cafe and in a Texas restaurant, man, when your coffee gets a little bit empty, boom, it's filled again. You notice that? Great, great thing. So mine was a little bit halfway down. So I went in, and Hans had put the coffee pot back up on the coffee burner so it would stay hot. So I went in and poured my cup hot, walked back in, sat down, and we continued, you know, got ready to pray. Steve Fletcher went in, grabbed the coffee pot, and came in 
and went around the table pouring everyone else's coffee. That's self-sacrificial service. Well, that's service. I'm not going to say it's self-sacrificial. <laughs> it would have been self-sacrificial service if Steve would have gone out there and there was only enough for Hans to have a warm-up. And he came back and gave the warm coffee to Hans, and he didn't get any. You see, what I illustrated in my own life early Sunday morning, I thought about me. And you can ask Mary, I think about me a lot. <laughs> see, I can be real self-sacrificial towards you, but man, when I get back into my home, it's time to take a break from being so self-sacrificial and serving. Steve illustrated what a believer needs to be always thinking of. You think of the other person. And the Lord Jesus commended the Thyatiran church because they poured coffee for others even when there wasn't going to be enough for themselves. I know one thing for sure. We're not going to ever debate that whatever happens, we need as as a community of faith to be ready that we grow in the self sacrificial service as we pour our lives into one another. And that's how we'll be ready for the Lord Jesus to come back at any time. We need to be growing in our deeds, in our love, in our faith, in our service. And the final word is a word for perseverance. Hanging in there. There's endurance. You're running a long race. Jesus' race is not the 100-meter sprint. It's even more than a cross-country. It's a marathon. And I just praise the Lord that the Lord Jesus is fueling. I want to encourage you. I want you to be concerned about enduring. Some of you are doing great works. You're a church family that's really focused on reaching the world for Jesus. And I just want to encourage you that if you stay focused on that, that's our priority. You know, I want every one of you to think of the mission that Jesus Christ has given you. I want you to think of the gifts that Jesus has laid before you. And keep focusing on that. Don't let anything distract you. Just to give you a little bit of time perspective, when I was in college, back at Houghton College, I was a chemistry major. The big thing then in 1967 and 68 is it was the end of the world as we know it because of pollution. I went to Lake Ontario, and the fish were all dead. If you went to look at Niagara Falls and then went a little bit further and looked at Lake Erie, you would have dead fish sweeping up on the beach. You could, bear, you could not have a picnic on Lake Erie because of the stench of the lake. It smelled like, I won't even tell you what it smelled like. It's not nice to talk about it Sunday morning. And we had a big discussion about it as believers. We had a big whole Sunday school class, pollution, the end of the world as we know. And we discussed it back and forth. When we got all done with the discussion, a Purdue University PhD stood up and said, you know what I think? I think man is sinful. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Because man is sinful, they tend to really mess up God's creation. As a believer, I'm really concerned about it. But you know what, God, the image of God in us isn't totally destroyed yet. And God's still giving us a lot of ingenuity and a lot of of planning ability, a lot of organization ability. You know what I think about pollution? I think someone's going to figure out how to clean it up. And I think when they figure out how to clean it up, they're going to make really big bucks doing it. You know what, as I look back over my life, Mary and I went to a conference on Lake Erie. Visited some friends. Guess what? My friends talked about boating in Lake Erie. They talked about of all the... They, they fish in Lake Erie. 
it works out that Niagara Falls is a gigantic, big, divine flusher. <laughs> and you know what? How many of you in industry would say that some people have made a lot of money dealing with pollution? Okay? I want to talk about another thing that a lot of you that are younger don't even think about. I've lived all of my life up until just a few years ago. In fact, I've given methods. It's the end of the world because of the nuclear holocaust. I'm a kid that sat in hallways with a leather jacket over my head in New Jersey. Like this. The, the, the siren went off. We went into the hallway like this, put leather jackets over our head. Because Cuba was going to shoot missiles at us and blow us to kingdom come. And because we were only a few miles from Manhattan, and Manhattan was the epitome of an American city, in northern Jersey, we were sure to go. So we were ready. We had our leather jackets overhead. If you're a physicist, know anything about nuclear explosions? If Manhattan gets hit with a nuclear blast, little kids with leather jackets over their head in the hall is really just not going to help too much. But you know what? Khrushchev came and went. Missiles came and went in Cuba. But you know what? The believers that were telling me back then, David, don't worry about communism so much. Preach Jesus. Don't worry about whether or not the world blows up by nuclear bombs. Preach Jesus. Don't live your life in fear because you're connected to a Savior. Proclaim him. Guess what? The Russian communist threat has ceased. But man, those people that are preaching Jesus, they're still going strong. Boy, am I glad for that. Now we have a new crisis. But isn't it going to be great to know that we're going to still have Jesus? And that's what all of you believe. That's what I want to encourage you. And I'm not telling you not to plan. I'm not telling you not to get out of debt. I'm not telling you not to put food in your garage if that's what you feel you need to do. What I am saying is that if we have a crisis, it could be one of the greatest times that we have as we learn what it means to depend upon one another and give to one another and reach out to unbelievers and, and love them and, and just be willing to sacrifice for one another. And that's what the Thyatiran church needed to learn, to endure in those things. But Jesus had a negative thing to say to them. It's what I started out with in our introduction. He says this, but I have this against you. It says, nevertheless, in verse 20, I have against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophet, a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality in the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. You say, Dave, what's going on in this church? Jezebel was not really her name. If you were a Christian or a Jew, you would never call a woman Jezebel. Never call your daughter Jezebel. If there's a Jezebel here, take your name as a statement of grace that Christ can forgive. Because Jezebel was the arch enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Tyre. She worshipped a god named Baal in Hebrew, Baal the master. The master Baal would take little children as sacrifices, kind of like the abortion thing in our country. And Baal would destroy little children. Baal was the god of, of thunder and lightning, the god of fertility, the god that brought the rain. His consort, Astarte, his sister, was the one who produced the, the marvelous crops and fertility. And the, the, the Canaanites and those people up in Tyre were Canaanites. They believed that every winter Baal died, Baal died, the thunder and lightning, the god of rain died. 
moat, the throat god, the gullet god, slid Baal into his stomach. And that was the end of fertility. And in, and in the land of Palestine in the wintertime, everything dries up. And it's cold and it's barren. And then they believed that Baal's sister would somehow beseech the god of death. And she would have relationships sexually with her brother Baal. And when Baal had the fertility of his, his sister moving within him, he would rise from the dead. The rains would come again off the Mediterranean Sea. And the crops would come and all the people would celebrate. And the way they celebrated, they would have these licentious immoral feasts because they believed that they had sex together in these corporate mass orgies that that would move the gods to have sex together and that would produce fertility. In other words, their culture worshipped sexuality. Their idolatry was the worship of sex. And that's why God said it needed to be cut out. But the Israelites never did cut it out. So it infiltrated their culture. And and Ahab, the king of Israel, married this Baal worshiper. And it tells us in the book of 1 Kings that Jezebel brought all of this immorality into the worship of Yahweh. And they mixed it all together. They synchronized it. Jezebel is the wicked queen. There, One day her husband Ahab was crying and says, Naboth has a beautiful vineyard. I want to have the vineyard. But he won't give it to me because he said it's God's gift to him. He follows this old Mosaic law that says you should keep your family inheritance in old Israelite law in the family. He won't even sell it to me. And I'm the king and I've offered him big bucks for it. Jezebel said, man, don't worry about that. I'll take care of it for free. So she got three sons of worthlessness to lie about Naboth. They went to the village and accused Naboth of a horrible crime. They brought it before the elders of the city. And these three guys get up and lie through their teeth. Commit much worse than perjury. They just bear false witness against Naboth. And they take Naboth out and stone him. And Jezebel says, all right, Ahab, there's your vineyard. She's the one that brought immorality in throughout Israel. She's the one that said to the true prophet Elijah, Elijah, you slew my prophets before this week is out. You're going to be dead. And the great prophet of of Israel lost his nerve before this woman Jezebel. And so when the New Testament says there's a Jezebel in your midst, what it's saying is that there's someone that's bringing idolatry into your midst. There's someone that's bringing immorality into your midst. In order for us to be J2C compliant, it's absolutely important for all of you to resist our culture. Our culture says that it's not wrong for you, if you're a teenager, to have immoral relationships. We don't even call it immoral. It's what kids do. That's where our culture is. Our culture says to you as adults, you you watch almost any television show, almost any movie. If you're single and you're 25 and you both work, you know what? You live together. One film after another where they begin the film assuming that two single adults sleep in bed with someone they're not married to. They don't preach it at you. They just assume the value system. I want you to see and to hear what your culture says. Man, listen, how many movies have you seen where an older man, the whole story is about a younger woman. That falls in love with him and she's his great daddy. And she's going to bring her the security that she never had. And if they're really in love with each other and they can meet each other's needs and they could give each other a moment of happiness, what could possibly be wrong with that? Wives accept it. Children accept it. Shouldn't the United States accept it? Sure, if the money of the economy still works good. I want you to understand that Jesus still says to you, and I want everyone to remember this. Jesus says to me today, Dave, 
You made a covenant vow to Mary. You promised her when you were 20 years of age. You went before your family, went before your friends, and you made a holy vow that you would be a one-woman man. You would focus sexually on her alone. And I got news for you. If I break that holy vow, God doesn't take it lightly. I want you to understand that that's really important. My whole relationship with you, when young women need pastoral counseling and, and I visit them in the hospital or when I'm with them as we, as we mill around town, many of you were little girls when I came and now you become beautiful young women. You have every right to expect the fact that when you're with me as your pastor, you are with your brother, with your daddy, and you've known to relate to me for that for years. If I ever sully that trust, if I ever sully that, that promise, then I've done something very, very evil. Do you understand that? I want you to understand, if you understand it for me, it's true for you. Don't believe Jezebel. If I mess up sexually, and Swindoll just wrote me a letter saying, I, I wrote a letter of encouragement, he said, Dave, I just want to thank you for keeping on for persevering. And he wrote at the end of his note, Dave, please keep pure. Why does he write that? Because he gets one letter after another every single week of Dallas Seminary graduates that have lost their purity morally. It does make a difference. Jesus can forgive. Jesus can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But let's not ever miss the method to the church of Thyatira. Jezebel is wrong. I want you to understand something. Some of you right now are involved in immorality. There's some tremendous words in, in the church, this letter to Thyatira. If I was writing this letter, I would say, you committed immorality in Midlothian Bible Church? You're out of here. You know, that's what I would expect him to say. And that's the way I was raised like that. Man, I was raised in church as many. If you ever found out someone was immoral, they're out of there. They have to go to the church in another state. But I want you to notice something. And men alive, if you had a woman prophetess that was given this kind of baloney information, if you find out about it, bang, they're out of there. Notice what it says here. I have given her time to repent. Are you a teenager fooling around sexually? God's giving a time to repent. Are you a young single fooling around sexually? Engaging in idolatrous activities, Jesus is giving you time to repent. Some of you say, Damien, the first time I was immoral, nothing happened. It was a great experience. Man, I didn't get struck with a bolt of lightning. Man, I looked at my heart and it was still ticking away. I got news for you. That's Christ's love. Christ's love. Christ's grace. He says, you got time to repent. Husband, are you having an affair in a distant city that your wife doesn't even know about? It happens. Are you going away on those business trips and making contact and you're living that dual life and you come to church Sunday morning and you do all the right things but you know you've got a double life morally and you can't figure out why your life just keeps filling on? It's because God is giving you new. Jesus, the precious Savior, is giving you time to repent. And my message to you this morning by based upon this word of Jesus is don't take that time lightly. Don't take that lightly. He is not giving you time to continue in sin. He's not giving you time to feel like this is no big deal. He's giving you time to turn away from it. And today, you need to decide that's it. 
no. And break those illicit relationships and never be involved with them again. Walk away from that friend that you're having intercourse with that doesn't belong to you. Get away, get away, get away. Get a friend that will meet with you regularly. Some of you have taken those steps as men. Get a friend that will ask you every single week, where's your eyes? Where's your heart? What are you focused on? If you're looking at the internet and you're hung up on pornography, make a decision today. I've been given a time to repent. Jesus says, turn away from it and get serious about it. You say, why should I do that? Because Jesus is here. Look what he says. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. I will cast her in a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit immorality with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the children, all the children will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each one according to his deeds. Do you know what Jesus is saying? You commit immorality and don't repent. Don't turn away from it. He says God is a daddy who can discipline. In the church of Jesus Christ today, as soon as you say that God the Father disciplined us for sin, you're intolerant. You know what? I love homosexuals. That's why I'm going to tell you, if you commit homosexuality repeatedly, there's a very good chance you'll die. If I was a medical doctor, I would tell you exactly the same thing. In fact, just this week in Dallas, Dallas celebrates one of the leading gay activists had big church meetings, worship services, where they, 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 they extolled his marvelous life. His life partner supposedly got up there and talked about his love for him. But you know what I never heard anyone say? Why is it, as we look around this room, that month after month that goes by, members are missing. They're gone. They're dead. You ever stop and think of how messed up that thinking is? You see, when I really love somebody, those of us that are heterosexual, homosexuality is an easy target. But I got news for you. The book of Revelation is saying if you're involved in persistent, unrepentant immorality, heterosexual immorality, there's a good chance you'll get sick. There's a good chance you could even die. In fact, all you need to do is go to insurance companies and tell them they give you the statistics and you'll find out that what Jesus said about it is true. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't love? No, he loves. But Jesus doesn't tolerate his children living in hardened, unrepentant sin. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus strikes people out of heaven? He doesn't have to. When you break his beautiful engineering plans for this body, when you break the way he wants us to use our bodies, and you follow this very chaotic, evil ways with your body, God doesn't have to strike you with anything. It just happens because of the fallenness of this present world that we live in. And Jesus lovingly comes to us and says, listen, there's a time to repent. Jesus doesn't just strike us with a thunderbolt. That's why we can go through many months, maybe even many years. But I want to challenge you as your pastor, because I know you're not going to hear this from a lot of American pastors. But I want to share with you one of the reasons that I stay pure. One of the reasons that I stay focused on Mary, one of the reasons that I want to keep myself morally a one-man woman is because I know the emotional agony, I know the physical agony, I know the spiritual deadness that comes to someone that's committing immorality. And what Jesus said here is true. I've given time to repent, but don't ever forget, I judge according to your deeds. Jesus isn't saying I'll take your salvation away. 
But after you've come to Jesus, don't think that because you've come to Jesus, you can do anything you want and not pay the consequences of it. And so Jesus says, today is time to repent. Whatever sin is involved in your life, Jesus is giving it time to repent. He closes positive. He says, now I say the rest of you in Thyatira to you who have not held this teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. I want you to know that Jesus isn't going to put any more burden on you. Not going to lay some heavy task upon you. He says this, I want you only to hold on to what you have until I come. In order to be J2C compliant, hold on to what you have. What do you have? To him who overcomes, who does my will to the end, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. Y2K might destroy all the nations. We might move into the tribulation period. I believe we're going to be in heaven, and I'll tell you why I believe that. Seven years later, we're going to come back in the thousand-year reign of Christ. When all the smoke is cleared, whether bombs go off, whether natural disasters come, whether computers break down, we are going to rule with the one who's going to rule with an iron scepter. The one who's going to dash his enemies just like pieces of pottery. Since I have received authority from my Father, I will also give you the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his church. You know what Jesus is saying? He said to the church of Thyatira, don't believe what Jesse's telling you. Don't live with a moral relativity of your culture. Don't believe this junk that you can do anything you want to sexually and have no consequences. Don't worry about it. God is a good judge. You don't have to be angry about it. You don't have to be worried about it. You don't have to be worried if it's going to be the end of the world. Because I told you, a Savior that says, hold fast to what you have. Whatever might happen, I want the bigger focus to be on J2C compliance. Jesus' second coming compliance. Free from immorality. Free from Jesse's false teaching holding fast what we have until he comes.